the word of God. From there, Abraham journeyed towards the territory of the Negeb and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not say to me, she is my sister, and she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. They will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she indeed is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must be, must be done to me, done me. And every place which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, behold, I have given you, your brother, a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and therefore, and before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Our Father, we're thankful for your word now, and we do, we do come to it humbly. We come to it wanting not to sit in authority over it, not to judge it, but we want to be judged by it. We want it to be above us. We want it to uh, show us ourselves. We want it to show us our God. We want, it, want to be reminded once again, even as we consider the sinfulness of the human heart today, our need for a Savior. And that we might therefore rejoice in that a Savior has been given. And so help even these verses cause a growing love for the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In Oscar Wilde's famous novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray, 
he writes of a young, handsome man who decides to have his portrait painted. And as he gazes at the finished portrait, he thinks to himself, if only we can reverse our roles, if only my portrait would do all the aging while I remained youthful and unchanged forever. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Well, he gets his wish. In fact, he remains this handsome young socialite while the portrait, which he has now hidden in his attic, begins to age. But the portrait just doesn't simply reflect his accumulated years, but also his behavior as well. And so when Dorian has a cruel comment, the mouth of the portrait twists into a cruel grin. Or when Dorian nurses hatred uh, for, for a rival in his heart, the eyes of the portrait narrow in rage. And eventually when Dorian murders a man, the hands of the portrait drip with blood. Well, one day it dawns on Dorian, and he finally recognizes that, that the terrible portrait hidden away in his attic actually represents his inner self. And so despising the painting, he, he takes a knife and slashes it apart. Later, a servant is in the attic and finds that the portrait has vanished, and Dorian Gray lies dead on the floor with a knife in his chest. The Apostle Paul writes that sin has a way of withering our soul. Sin has a way of enslaving us to increasingly greater wickedness. If you were here last week, we, we saw what we might call the degenerative effects of sin in this believer named Lot. Today, uh, we sadly see it in Abraham. And in fact, in both cases, both Lot and Abraham, both men, both believers, do terrible things with the women in their lives. And so it's, it's almost as if we leave Genesis 19 and we're, we're happy, to, if you will, to leave it behind, walking away thinking, Lot is the worst, right? That guy is awful. I'm sure glad we have Abraham. And then God says, oh yeah, by the way, let's read Genesis 20 and you'll see Abraham is a failure too. Abraham is not a superhero. The patriarchs do not wear capes. They rarely come to the rescue. In fact, they often need to be rescued because of their folly and their sin and their rebellion. And here we see that it's Abraham's faithlessness to God that puts in jeopardy the very covenantal promises of a coming redeemer through his life. And we learn once again that Abraham, like us, is a sinner Abraham, like you and I, at times is wicked, at times sinful, at times in rebellion, and that he, just like me and you, needs a Savior too. And I hope that's what God will teach us through this passage. Now, if you come to a passage like Genesis 20, and I don't know, maybe you're reading this, reading through the Bible, you ever come to passages like this and think, God, why is this even in the Bible? I mean, what am I supposed to do with a passage like this? We understand maybe why Genesis 15 is in the Bible, that, that great uh, covenantal um, um, agreement between God and Abraham under the night stars. Maybe we understand why Genesis 17 is in the Bible, the covenantal sign of circumcision. 
but, but why, why Genesis 14, where Abraham goes to war? Or, or why you know, Genesis 18, where Abraham has lunch with God? Or why Genesis 20, where Abraham seems to uh, give his wife away? What do we do with passages like this? Well, it might be helpful. When I come to passages like this, I'm asking three questions. And this might be helpful for your own time. If, if this is something you struggle with, what do I do with these passages? This might be helpful. It might not be. But this is the questions that I ask. What does this passage teach Teach me about myself. What, what do we see about human nature here? You recognize that human nature doesn't change, right? And so what we can do is we can learn about ourselves from others' experience. So today we're, we're going to see uh, sin in another man named Abraham, not so that we feel superior. That's never the case for why God shows sin, so we feel better about ourselves, but so instead, we, we can learn about the sin in our own heart. The second question I ask is, what does this passage tell us about God? Because God's nature also doesn't change. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. He is, he is, he is unchanging. He is the Alpha and Omega. And he is immutable. That is, he never changed. He is only perfect. So what do, what do we learn about God? And then thirdly, the question I ask is, what does this teach us about redemption? About salvation? You understand the Bible is an entire book about salvation. You have Genesis 1 and 2 where God creates man in his beautiful image. And then we get to Genesis 3. We see the fall. And for the rest of the Bible until you get to the last two chapters, it's all about God redeeming. So God is doing a great redeeming work. And so what this will do, passages like this, and I hope it will do so this morning, it will point us to our need of a Savior. Right? The Augustine long ago, said the Old Testament is like a fully furnished room that is poorly lit. It's a fully furnished room, poorly lit. And what he's saying is there's much to see in the Old Testament, but sometimes it's hard to see unless you open a window and you let some light in. Well, the window is the New Testament. So we, oh, we read the Old Testament in light of what we know in the New Testament, and we let the light of the New Testament shine in on the Old Testament that we might discover wonderful truths about salvation, in particular about Jesus as well, that we might not otherwise see. And so in fact, I think these stories, as Jesus taught us in Luke 24, are to prepare, prepare us and to point us to Jesus Christ. And so today what we see is uh, a picture of sin, don't we? Once again, we're reminded of the folly of sin. So it might be helpful, by the way, before we consider sin this morning, to think, get a good definition of sin in our minds. So what, what, would, you, what would you say sin is? Right? Especially in light of Genesis 19. I think it's helpful for us to say, we need to understand what sin is. Someone asks you today, hey, you're a Christian. I hear you guys talk about sin all the time. What is that? What is sin? How would you answer that question? Maybe you would say, well, sin is Sin is when you commit a mistake. Okay? There might be some truth in that. I heard one pastor say, sin is unhealthy behavior. I'm not very comfortable with that, to be honest. Okay? I think we could probably get rid of that one. Okay? You say, may say, well, sin is, sin is breaking God's commands. Well, yeah, that, that's part of it. Is that all it is? How would you answer that? What is sin? I, I've been so helped by the modern definition of sin that has become quite renowned. Um, by Pastor John Piper. He says, sin is this. Sin is the glory of God not honored. The holiness of God not reverenced. 
the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the promises of God not believed, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. That's sin. He goes on and says, why is it that people can become emotionally and morally indignant over poverty and exploitation and prejudice and abortion and the manifold injustices of man against man and yet at the same time feel little or no remorse or indignation or outrage that God is disregarded, that God is disbelieved, that God is disobeyed, that God is dishonored, and thus God is belittled by millions and millions of his creatures. The answer is sin. And it is the moral outrage of the universe. And I mention that because I want you and I today as we consider God's word to feel that outrage. Outrage not not at their sin, but at your own and my own. That it might lead us to repentance in a merciful and gracious God. In particular, we'll see today the sin of, as Piper put it, the the faithfulness of God not trusted and the promises of God not believed A sin of faithlessness revisited once again by Abraham. For you see, first of all this morning, it is a reoccurring sin. A reoccurring sin. You notice Abraham is on the move again, according to verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed towards the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. Perhaps Abraham has moved because he... Uh, you might move too if you lived up on a ridge and every morning you look down at the ashen remains of Sodom and Gomorrah, perhaps still smoldering, and you think, well, I'm not sure we want to live here anymore with that in, as our view. And so he's off on the move. He moves actually to Philistine country, interestingly enough. Those guys typically don't get along with the Jewish people. They're the enemies of God's people. It would be like a Christian moving to Iran, perhaps. And if you move to Iran as a Christian, you might take the fish off the back of your car. You might, you know, think of, okay, how am I going to do this? It's going to be difficult to follow God, right, in that environment. And so Abraham has some difficulty in front of him. And you notice he doesn't do so well, as you see in verse 2. And Abraham said to his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. So stop me if you heard this before, by the way, right? I mean, if you've been paying attention, didn't we already do this in Genesis 12, right? Where Abraham said, she's my sister. Pharaoh took Sarah to be his wife. And then Pharaoh finds out. He rebukes Abraham. And, and the, the pagan tells the prophet he ought to act godly. And then he gives him a bunch of stuff, right? And that's what we see here. In fact, I was tempted just to pull Gen- my sermon on Genesis 12 and preach it again. I don't know if you would notice at all. But, uh, I mean, it's just... It's the same thing. I'm reading this passage and the glory. what am I supposed to do with this? In fact, you might hear some of the same jokes today. I don't know. I forgot what I said. And, but it's the, almost the exact same thing. And you've got to be thinking, don't you? You're banging your head on the table. Man, what, what are we, why are we doing this again? It didn't go so well last time. Right? Why, why, how is it possible 
that you once again are not protecting your wife, right? You, you once again are giving her to another man. I mean, you did that 20 years ago. And you, you, the cowardly old man, hands off his wife to another king's harem, uh, even though, even, and you lie about it. Right? How, how is that possible? I mean, it's an extraordinary sin against his wife, isn't it? I mean, I don't, I don't care how bad your husband is. I trust he has never done this to you, right? Your husband ever say, you know, you know sorry, I forgot Valentine's Day, but at least I never gave you to another man. Right? Uh, I mean, this is extraordinary what Abraham's doing, isn't it? In fact, a quick point of application, right? Don't give your wife to other men, okay? Hopefully that doesn't have to be said, but I don't know. This place is getting kind of weird out, outside. So, I mean, this is, this is a bad idea. We, in fact, by the way, we need Sarah, don't we? We found this out in Genesis 18. Sarah's part of the plan. There is a promised son coming. There's a redeemer coming. And it says, come from Abraham. But we found out in Genesis 18, no, no, he, he comes from Sarah too. And so if we want to get to Jesus, we need Sarah So let's stop giving her away to other people. And what we see here, of course, don't we, is the stubbornness of sin. Sin takes root, and it's hard to get rid of. It's like you ever have poison ivy out in your field, and you think you finally got rid of it, and you just turn around, and it keeps coming back. That's what sin is like. You You ever do the same sin twice? 50 times? A thousand times? I mean, how often have you told God, God, I'll never do that again? And how long was it until you did it again? There are sins in, into which we all, all are uni- uniquely susceptible to. What one pastor long ago named Fullerton told a story of a lighthouse on the New England coast. And it was one of those old lighthouses with that beautiful octagonal glass light. And in a storm, one of the panels of glass was shattered. And he, and he had no glass to replace it. And so he took a sheet of plywood and he, and he replaced that section with plywood. And it just so happened that a vessel was approaching the coast looking for the light, which should have shone through that piece of glass. But now there's this, this board in front of it. And so the light's shining fine over there and the light's shining fine over there and the light's shining well over there. But where they need it, there is no light. And the vessel ran aground because of the inconsistency of the light that was shown. My friends, my my brothers and sisters in Christ, what inconsistencies are in your life? What, what What would your husband say? What would your wife say? What would your kids say? We have these reoccurring sins that continually reemerge in our lives as we see in Abraham. In fact, it keeps coming up, so God is going to have to fix it. As you see, secondly, God is restraining sin. We are, have reoccurring sin. God restrains sin. You note verse 3, But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is another man's wife. Now, I think that would probably get your attention, right? God shows up and says, you notice God's not the best conversationalist. He doesn't say, hello, how are you doing today? You know, I'm Yahweh. Um, we have some things to talk about. He shows up and, and like a mob boss, he says, behold, you're a dead man. You're a dead man. I don't know if he has an Italian accent or what, but there he is. He says, you're dead. As God shows up in his dream, that will get your attention, won't it? Why? Because you've taken another man's wife. 
Does God care about marriage? Yeah, seems like he does. Does God care about adultery? Yeah, sure seems like he does, doesn't he? Well, Abimelech rushes to his defense, as you know, in verse 4. Now, Abimelech had not approached her, so, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this thing. He says, God, I'm innocent. I'm innocent for two reasons. One, I haven't even touched her. And two, they told me she was his sister. I had no idea. And he says, I've done this in the integrity of my heart. Evidently, Abimelech the pagan knows that taking another man's wife is bad because his conscience testifies to this. He has a conscience because he's made in God's image. Whether you're a Christian or not, we all have the law of God written on our hearts. The book of Romans tells us we know right and wrong, which is just another of the common human experiences among thousands that evolution can't even remotely explain. Why is it that we feel guilt over secret sin? Well, because God's law is on our hearts. We have a moral compass. And by the way, whether you're a Christian or not, if you have a moral compass and you follow it, you could be a really nice guy. You could have a good family. I mean, this man may not love God. He certainly doesn't, but he seems to have some some moral commitments. I think of my own father who came to Christ when he was 49 years old. But no one would have looked at Doug Carn prior to that and say, that's a wicked man. He was a good man. My, 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 my father never lied to another. My father kept his commitments. My father um, was involved in the, in the community. My father taught us the golden rule. I had no idea it was Jesus until I was 19 and read, my dad's been quoting Jesus all these years. I didn't know if he knew. My, you know, my father drove uh, to the great agony of his sons two miles an hour below the speed limit wherever he went, right? My father was a good guy. Wasn't a believer at all. Why? Because he had a he had a conscience and he followed it. People like Abimelech, these guys make good neighbors and good bosses and good friends. In fact, it's sometimes, sadly, I think, that that the non-believers actually act better than the Christians. Clearly, it's here, right? Abimelech is more moral than Abraham. And so, just, by the way, just because the contractor has a fish on his card doesn't mean he won't rip you off in Jesus' name, right? Okay. The, the non-Christian contractor, he may be more honest than the Christian one well, because there is such a thing called, as called hypocritical Christians. Now, not here, of course. I know that, right? You know, other churches, right? Where we act one way around certain people and act a different way around others. Just because, a Christian, just because a Christian does something doesn't mean we as Christians have to defend it. We don't have to defend everything in church history. I feel like sometimes we feel like we, we, ha- we, we need to defend everything that the church has done. We don't. We could agree with the world and say, yes, that was evil. It was dishonoring to God, and it shouldn't have been done. You say, well, why become a Christian at all? Well, because God is not primarily interested in making moral people. He's primarily interested in making forgiven people. Who, who he intends, of course, that they might live like him once they're forgiven. He's trying to connect people to himself, that they come to know his grace and his mercy and his goodness and, and fall in love with him. 
And so Abimelech says, listen, I haven't done anything. I'm innocent. And God says, I know you're innocent because of me. Look what God has done to restrain the sin in verse 6. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. So he agrees with Abimelech. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Right? So Abimelech says, I didn't touch her. And God says, I know, but you wanted to, didn't you? Right? I kept you from touching her. Right? I, I gave her that headache. That was me. Right? I kept you away. Right? That, that you might not approach her. This is what God has done. That God restrains sin. He restrains the sinful heart. In fact, if you read in the book of Romans, chapter 1, God's wrath is described as removing his hand of restraint upon a sinful people. He just lets them go further and further into sin. And God is actively restraining sin. As as many of you know, I I came to Christ as as a late teenager and prior to that, uh, I, I was, I was uh, all around illicit drugs throughout high school. And uh, to my shame, I, I participated in some of that. But there were some hardcore drugs that were all around me, that were offered to me all the time. And my friends were doing them, and people at school were doing them. And for some reason, I said, no, I don't, not, not this time, not this time. And I look back on it now. And I said, that was the grace of God in non-believing Stephen Carn, that he was holding me back from my sin. And so, so Abimelech says, well, I haven't done it. And God says, I know you haven't done it because I'm protecting you from it. And therefore, instead of boasting about your goodness, you ought to say thank you. Because that's what I've done in your life. When's the last time you said thank you to God from keeping you from doing the sinful things you want to do? It was I who kept you from sinning. Now it's time to go and do the right thing. As you see, thirdly, rebuking sin. Rebuking sin. In verse 7 we read, Now then, now then, God speaking to Abimelech, Return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you don't return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. And I think this verse has got to be very confusing to Abimelech because you notice what God calls Abraham. He says he's a prophet. By the way, that's the first time that word's used in the Bible. And Abimelech must be thinking, okay, the guy who lied to me, the guy who gave me his wife, didn't protect her but gave her away, that's your servant? That's your prophet? And he'll pray and fix things for me? And God says, in effect, yeah, that's my guy, right? He's a bonehead sometimes, right? But he's my guy. I love him. And I'm sticking with him. And so now you do what's right and you live. Here's the option. Do what's right and you live. Do what's wrong and you die. Okay? And so I just, I love how God gives choices. Right? There it is. You can do what's right and you can live. Do what's wrong. You die. And by the way, everyone in in your nation is going to die. And I think that's pretty much the same decision God gives every one of us. Right? You You can repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Receive his mercy and grace for your sin. And you can live forever. Or, option two, You could continue to reject the mercy in which God would offer you, and you can die and go to hell. That's your choice. That's the choice here before Abimelech. Here's here's what you can do. You can do what is right, and you get to live. Do what's wrong, 
and you, you will die, he says. Well, he makes his choice, as you see in verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, right? So we're getting right on this. Cancel my appointments. Something's come up. And he called his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid, right? And you can understand they're afraid because undoubtedly they've heard about Sodom. They've heard about Gomorrah and that, and that God rained fire down upon them, as we saw in Genesis 19. And now God shows up and says, by the way, you're all going to die too, and that will make you a little bit nervous, won't it? And so he says, okay, we need to figure this out. We, there is no delay. I'm going to obey. But before he does, he calls Abraham to himself, and he begins to rebuke him, as you see in verse 9. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us, and how have I sinned against you, that you brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things ought not to be done. So the pagan preaches to the prophet. The, the non-believer calls the man of God to repent. Right? And the, I, <laughs> you notice who he says, what did, what did you do to us? Why, why are you acting this way towards us? What did I do to you? We welcomed you. We're kind to you. You said she's your sister. And you're a sinner, Abimelech says to him. And it's a bad day, isn't it, when an unbeliever rebukes you? Right? It's a bad day when someone says, listen, I'm not a Christian, but I'm pretty sure you as a Christian shouldn't be saying the things you're saying. Right? That's, a, that's a tough day. It's a bad day when someone says, I don't share your faith, but I'm pretty sure you shouldn't be acting this way. And what do we do? Well, we, we, always, we, we immediately rush to our defense. Well, he's not a Christian. What does he know? Right? I go to church. I listen to Caleb. He doesn't know anything. Okay? Right? He can't tell me what's wrong. Well, yeah, he can. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you shouldn't listen to the rebukes of unbelievers. God might be speaking through them. doesn't mean you always take their criticism, but you listen and you consider. In fact, what should have Abraham done? He should have pulled in. He should have gathered Sarah next to him closely and said, okay, honey, this is a pagan place. They're going to be watching us, and so we need to represent God well. After all, I'm his prophet, and we need to make sure they all know who God is by the way we act. I don't think that ever entered his mind. He loses his witness once again in a pagan town, just like Lot lost his witness in Sodom, and he gets rebuked for it. In fact, notice who's impacted by his sin. Don't you think his servants wondered, okay, what, what, is, what is our leader doing with his wife? Why is he doing this? With the neighbors around him, right? I don't know if you noticed, the judgment of God's not simply going to fall on Abimelech, but in the entire city of Gerar. You see that in verse 7, uh, don't you? When God, when God uh, says to the, to the man, he says, If you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. All who are yours. We saw that in verse 4 as well. We see it in verse 9. That's strange to us as individual Westerners who really focus on our own individual ambitions and accomplishments, but to a traditional culture, it's not strange to them at all. The king represents the people. The father represents the family. There's headship there. So he's impacted his servants. He's impacted his neighbors. What about his wife? What do you think she's thinking? What about his son? Right? Isaac's coming soon. You know what Isaac does? <laughs> Guess what Isaac does? Oh, we'll be so excited when we get to there. He does the same thing his father taught him. He gives away his wife. Guess to whom? 
to Abimelech, the same guy. Right? And he's passing this on. He's teaching everybody this behavior. Dads, listen. Husbands, listen. Your sin or your godliness is going to impact your family. It's going to impact your wives. It's going to impact your children. You don't sin in isolation. We, there, we think we do, but we don't. It's going to either help. Our lives are going to help people pursue Christ, or it's going to hinder people who pursue Christ. And we want to be the type of people that propel others towards Jesus. We don't want to be the type of people who bring others away from Christ. In fact, Jesus himself said in Matthew 18, it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom they come. And so the man, the pagan rebukes the man of God, and despite his rebuke, it doesn't seem that Abraham receives it at all. Sadly, he continues in his sin, this time denying that he had sinned. You notice in verse 10, and Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? What did you see in me? What were you thinking that you sinned this way? Verse 11, Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because she is my wife. You notice he, he doesn't confess his sin. He doesn't seek forgiveness. He just justifies it, right? He makes excuses for sin. We're really good at this, right? You know, sorry I pulled my sister's hair, but she called me a name, right? right? Sorry I kicked the cat, but traffic, okay? Right? We always have an excuse. It's not my fault. It's someone else's fault, right? And he, he looks at Abimelech and says, well, you know, you all are terrible people, and that's why I did this, okay? We, we're con- what about, what about, yeah, that was evil. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done it. Will you forgive me? In fact, you notice the counsel in which Abraham received. He says there in verse 11, I did this because I thought, literally in the Hebrew it says, I said to myself, sometimes yourself gives you terrible advice. That's why we have the Bible. That's why God gave us a church Church is not man's invention, it's God's invention. Why we're to be plugged in, have people in our lives so that we can receive counsel from them, that, that they could speak to us, that we can go to our friends and say, hey, I was thinking of giving my wife to another man, what do you think, okay? And so they could say, no, it's a bad idea. Let's, let's think of something else. We need others, we need to get their counsel. So he excuses his sin, he's, he's just in his own head, And you notice he totally misjudges them. He says, you guys don't fear God around here. That's why I did it. Oh, really? They seem to fear God a lot more than you do. Isn't that what they're doing, all out of fear? Right? Abraham says, you know, we pulled into town, we looked around, and said, oh, there's a bunch of of gross sickos around here. So I gave my wife away. Right? As, As if that's an answer. Could you imagine? Right? You know, you coming into town, honey, look at them all. They're nasty. They got tattoos, and they're smoking cigarettes, or they're, they're driving Priuses, or whatever it is, right? They're gross. Look at them. They're not, they speak the wrong language. Why don't they speak our language, right? They're not like us, are they, honey? Yeah? By the way, if anyone asks, say you're my sister. Right? How about let's, Christians, let's lay aside the self-righteous, judgmental attitude that seems to be so pervasive among us that Abraham is exemplifying. 
Okay, we see this in him. Don't you think that non-Christians, like Abimelech, wonder, why do Christians, why are they constantly judging us? Why do you Christians look down your nose at us and say terrible things about us? Why do you hate us? I don't know, Jesus had something to say about this. I think he told us to, what, what was it, love your neighbors? Love your neighbors? Instead of this self-righteous, judgmental attitude, that we should be like Jesus with non-Christians. We are his missionaries, after all. We represent Jesus. And my friends, you may be the only Christian that the people in your neighborhood ever know. You may be the only Christian that people in your office ever know. You may be the only Christian that people on the ball field or in the classroom ever know. And we can't, like Abraham, just look down our, our nose at people and judge them, say those people are gross and that's nasty. We are instead, as Christ has shown us, to love them as Christ has loved you. God has blessed us. Why? We've seen this in Abraham's life so that we might be a blessing to others. We might serve our neighbors. We might share God's love, right? And so Abraham totally misjudges them. And then you kind of wish he would stop talking, but he doesn't. For he says in verse 12, besides, she indeed is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. He, he, he says to Abimelech, well, I really, yeah, I gave you to be, her to be your wife, but at least I didn't lie, she really is my sister. I mean, how does that make it okay? I mean, how is that even irrelevant? At least I'm not a liar. I did give my wife to another man, but at least I told the truth about it. I mean, he's, in fact, he's been running this scheme for some time, as you see in verse 13. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. And every place in which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Right? They, when do they make this arrangement? Well, 25 years ago, when God called him out of Ur. And it's stunning, right? He says to, to his wife, hey, baby, this is how you show you love me. If you really love me, you'll let me give you away. Right? It, it, it is absolutely appalling. And Abraham says, we've been doing this from the very beginning. How many times have they done this? I mean, we only know of two times where the actually man took her, but how, maybe every town they pull in, they do the whole she's my sister thing. And, and Abraham, in light of that, has the audacity to look at these people and say, you don't fear God. Well, does Abraham, does he fear God? Seems like he fears man a lot more. I mean, Abraham generally trusted God, but, but he gets pressured by these new situations, and we see him lack faith. I'm not in any way suggesting Abraham doesn't love God. He certainly does. But he fails again and again and again and again, and it often has to do with his faith. And I think he teaches us, listen, things might be going well in our life. We might be in a good season in our life, and there's nothing to shake us. But then something comes along, and it rocks us a bit. You go to work tomorrow. Your boss calls you in and says, hey, I need to let you know we're restructuring. And by the end of the week, you don't have a job here anymore. The doctor calls you after your annual physical he says, you know, I need you to come back in. We need to talk about some things. Right? And you get, you get a little bit shaken. What do you do? What do you do at those times? When challenges come, as we see in Abraham's life, he seems to forget that God knows all about our life. He seems to forget that God is big enough to care for him. And he instinctively falls back on this faithless scheme. 
In fact, he reminds me of Peter. Right? It was as Butch read for us this morning. Remember, remember when, when Jesus pulls all the, all the apostles aside and said, listen, guys, you all are going to deny me. And Peter says, well, excuse me, Lord, can I just speak up for a moment? Even if I have to die, I won't deny you. And then an hour later, a girl comes and says, hey, he's with Jesus. And Peter says, I don't know the man. And then another says, yeah, you're with Jesus. And he says, I don't know the man. And then a third, this time calling curses upon himself. I don't know the man. The same man that an hour ago, you looked him in the eyes and said, even if I have to die, you can count on me. Now you don't know him? Now, now, now you walk away from him? Right, it's easy to trust when everything's good, but you add a little fear, you add a little uncertainty, you add a little temptation, and often the faithlessness that is deeply rooted within our heart comes erupting to the forefront. When the band's playing and we're all gathered here on Sunday morning, oh, isn't everything wonderful, but is it different in the office tomorrow? Is it different in the classroom tomorrow? Is it different on the ball field tomorrow? It is there that you will wrestle out the uh, the implications of your faith. And the question is, will I follow Jesus there? Will I trust him? And my brothers and sisters in Christ, you have to decide, do you care more what God thinks of you than what man thinks of you? Are you willing to be God's friend and everybody else's fool? Because we talk about faith, don't we? Well, we like to talk about it. But when it comes to time to show it, are we living it or are we denying it? Abraham sadly denies it, which is why we need God to come and overcome it. As you know, in verse 14 Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. Abimelech is abundantly gracious to sinful Abraham. He says to Abraham, here's a bunch of money, right? Here's some servants, here's a house, here's here's some cars, right? It almost thinks, you know, I I should send some more. I mean, look, you get servants out of this. I mean, I don't even know what's going on here. I mean, Abraham should have given to Abimelech, shouldn't he? You know, we're so sorry for almost destroying your entire nation. Sarah made muffins, okay? You know, here you go, right? He should have said, thank you for giving my wife back. I've wronged you. I would like to give you this. But instead, Abimelech gives to Abraham. And then we come, I think, to my favorite verse in verse 16. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Notice what he calls Abraham. Your brother, right? That's a little rib shot to Abraham, right? Your brother, wink, 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 right? I've given him, what, a thousand pieces of, a thousand pieces of silver. Why? It's a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. That's enough silver for 150 years' wages, He's given it to her to vindicate Sarah. He wants everyone to know Sarah hasn't sinned. This is not her deal. And so he gives, gives them equivalent of about $10 million. Right? Here's $10 million, Sarah. 
you go shopping, buy some shoes, you'll feel better, okay? Right? And this, I want to just take care of you. I wonder if Sarah's thinking, you know, maybe I should stay with this guy because he seems to be concerned for my honor a lot more than my husband does. He's paying out just so everybody knows that I've been honorable, right? I didn't touch her, he said. And it's helpful for us because Isaac's coming in the next chapter. Isaac's coming in just a matter of months, and we need to know whose daddy is Isaac as we try to get to the Redeemer. He says, no, she's innocent because God has overcome everybody's sin. Abraham's trying to throw away the plan. Abimelech's working against the plan. And despite it all, God is doing what he said he's going to do. You see this? Everybody's running away from God, and God is just pulling it all back together to make sure his plan is completed. God will not let sinners thwart his agenda. God will get his way. He hates sin, make no doubt about it, but he is going to fulfill his plan. And I, I, I think there's hope there. As terrible as things become, even in our day, in 2019 and going forward, as awful as it looks, please understand that God is still in charge. He will fulfill his mission. Right? It doesn't matter ultimately how much sin is in our hearts or their hearts. God is going to do what he's going to do. Christ will be exalted. There will be ultimate victory to our Lord Jesus. And Abraham, he needs to hold on to this hope just as you and I do. Because he not only misjudged Abimelech, he misjudged God himself. God said, I made you a promise. I'm going to keep it. And despite the sinful desires of kings, and the faithless acts of prophets, God is going to provide for his people, whether they trust him or not. Which leads us lastly to, I think, a picture of forgiving sin. Forgiving sin. You know, verse 17, then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech, because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. He says, I want you to pray for the man that you sinned against. I want you to pray for his well-being. I want you to pray for his nation. And we saw this in chapter 18. Do we pray for unbelievers? Right? This is what Abraham's doing. Leave the judging to God. Right? We pray for them. We love them. We care for them. Abraham's praying for them, and we notice God heals them. God heals them. Why? Because Abraham prayed. Does God answer prayer? Yeah. You, you want evidence. Here it is. Circle. Genesis 20, 17. You can't have a more clear example of God responding to prayer. Does God heal? Yeah. Genesis 20, 17. God heals. Is God concerned about infertility issues? Does God open the womb in response to prayer? Not every time, but he does. We have it right here. Genesis 20, 17. God has the power to close wombs. He has the power to open wombs. God has the power to restrain sin. God has the power to speak through dreams. God has the power to make sure that his will is accomplished and nothing is going to stop him. And I wonder if this very clear demonstration of God's power, I have no evidence for this, but I kind of wonder, did this, might this have led to a revival in this Philistine city there as they clearly see the power of this, this God working in their midst? And at the same time, how humbling must this have been for Abraham? As God says to Abraham, in effect, Abraham, you're not a great guy. You keep sinning. 
but I love you. And I'm still gonna use you, so now I need you to pray for them. Right, he's telling Abraham to pray, and in doing so, he shows Abraham, you're still my man. I'm still with you. I'll forgive your, in fact, God's been putting up with this crazy couple for 25 years now, right? He's not gonna stop. He even calls him my prophet, my prophet. In other words, his sin doesn't change God's view of him. You see that? Christian, your sin does not change God's view of you. You are still, despite your sin, you are still and forever shall be his son, his daughter. And no matter what you do, if you are in Christ, that will never end. You're my son, and I long for better for you, but you will always be my son. He is that way because he forgives us. He does not love Abraham for the great things that Abraham does for him. He loves Abraham because he has set his love upon him. I love how the poet put it. Jesus loves me when I'm good, when I do the things I should. Jesus loves me when I'm bad, though it makes him very sad. I think that's true. In fact, the the proverb writer in Proverbs 24 and verse 16 says, the righteous man, the righteous man falls seven times and rises again, right? Could you imagine falling seven times? I don't even like to fall once, right? You imagine walking down, down you go. Oh, that hurt, up. And then you take two more steps, down you go, right? You get back up, down you go. I think by this time, I'm sitting down, okay? Right? The righteous man falls seven times, but what? He rises again. You say, how is that righteous? Well, because our righteousness, Christian, is not based on the fact that we never fall, that we never fail, that we never sin. Our righteousness is seen when God forgives our fall and rises us back up so that we can continue our pursuit of God. Abraham keeps falling, but he shows his righteousness. After he falls, he trusts the Lord, and we'll see it as we move forward, right? That God is with him. And I don't know, maybe, maybe today you find yourself, you're in, you're in the dirt. Maybe you're on the ground today. I tell you, based on the authority of the word of God, you can get up. Maybe your marriage is a wreck. Maybe your relationships are a wreck. But God is a forgiving God. God covers us with grace. He never gives up on us. You can continue to seek him. That doesn't mean he ignores sin. In fact, sometimes he exposes it. He clearly exposed it in Abraham's life. I mean, there are many, many ways he could have got Sarah back to him, right? There's many ways God could have done this. But he chose to do it in the throne room of the king. That we're going to talk about this sin in front of everyone. Why? Why? Why does he expose it? So that Abraham might declare, just like you can, that the only hope for sinners like me is not my righteousness, but it is the gospel. A commentator long ago wrote, Jesus loves us when we are bad as well as when we are good, and our public sins give us ample opportunity to testify to that amazing fact. And so we conclude noticing Abraham intercedes and God answers his prayer. That's interesting to me. Why do it this way? 
Why not just heal once the wife goes back? Why require Abraham to pray? Well, because Abimelech needs an intercessor. Just like you do. And I do. We too need someone praying for us, don't we? In fact, the Son of God lived without sin. He didn't do any of this nonsense that Abraham did. He died in our place to pay our sins. He rises from the dead as we have testified in song today. And now what is he doing? What is Jesus doing today? He's interceding for you. Just like Abraham interceded for Abimelech. Isaiah 53 and verse 12 said, He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. Jesus is making intercession for sinners like us. Paul picks up on this in Romans 8 and says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who has been raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. My brothers and sisters, you can talk to God today You can take your hurt to him today. You can take your fears to him today. You can take your troubles, your hopes, your sins to him today. And you can say, Jesus, will you take these to the Father on my behalf? Will you answer this prayer, not because of my goodness, but because of your goodness? Will you intercede for me? And his answer is unequivocal, yes. For the Bible says in Hebrews 7 and verse 25, he always lives to make intercession. Right now, he lives to make intercession. Maybe you're like Abraham today. Maybe you are an immoral Christian. Will you not bring your sin to God? Will you not stop making excuses for it? Will you not say, next time I'll take care of it? Will you come to God, even now, in the quietness of your own heart, and say, Father, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I do the things I ought not to do. Will you forgive me and give me strength that I might walk in obedience? And maybe, maybe today you're like Abimelech, a moral man who has no relationship with God. And therefore, because you have shunned your creator, you are under condemnation. I tell you, based upon God's word, you can have a relationship with him right now. If you would pray, God, you have made me. You sustain me. And I have lived my life in disregard of you. I give you no thanks. I seek to offer you no obedience. And I'm sorry for my sin. Will you please through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, forgive me. I believe and I ask for your grace. You know, the Bible says in Romans 10 and verse 13, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is our Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be, what is it, church? Saved. You could be saved today. Our Father in heaven, we are saved by mercy. 
we are once again reminded that we stand accepted by you not because of the good we have done, the righteousness in which we have accumulated, the meager obedience in which we have offered you. We stand before you, loved by you, forgiven by you, accepted by you, because Christ was cast out by you. And he, our Savior, paid for all our sin and rose victoriously on that third day, is alive now and is speaking into your ear, Father, those at Hamilton Baptist Church are mine. They're mine. Forgive them of their sin and give them strength to walk in love and in obedience. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You are dismissed. Thank you, Tom. Thank you.